is the error term. Hi, this is Jim Savage. I'm Amos Elberg. And I'm Shosh Wasserman. This week, the first thing that we're going to talk about is the subject of noise. And when we were doing this last week, uh, James asked me some questions about how you recognize text when that text isn't very clean, when there are typos, when there are spelling errors, and when there isn't very much of it. And I didn't really have the greatest answer to that at the time. It was a sort of a surprising question. So I went back and I thought about it. And the answer basically, James, is we have a couple of techniques. Basically, any technique that we're going to do to deal with the problem of dirty text, which is a very common problem. If you build a classifier for email, it's not likely to work on chats. It's not going to work on Skype because of typos and spelling errors and different styles. So all of these techniques basically involve looking at subcomponents of words. One thing we do is called word engrams. Another thing we might do is look at individual characters. And then there'll be some kind of algorithm, some kind of methodology, possibly character engrams. It might be a linear model or a multi-level uh, neural network, or it could be a recurrence or a convolution or something else going on. But essentially what you do is try and work with subcomponents. But there's a limit to how much noise cleanup you can do in any situation. So what you mean to say is that there might be many different representations of a given word and you want to kind of say, you know, I might say buy or chow or BRB or these sorts of different things which have the same implicit meaning and, and you'd try to group those or cluster those together and use those as, as features in your model? Is that is that kind of what you mean? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> there are a couple of things that we can do. One of them is if you want to build a you know your basic linear model or, or quasi-linear model using some kind of one-hot representation, um, what you'll do is you'll take the number of character, take character engrams, and each character engram will become a feature. What's an engram? Uh, engram is, let's take the word function. Yep. If we just looked at individual characters, F would be a feature, U would be a feature, N would be a feature, and so on. But if you think about how language works, components of words carry meaning, carry syntactic meaning. So an engram, if we were going to use four grams, the features would be F, FU would be a feature, FUN would be a feature, FUNC would be a feature. And we would do that all throughout the thing. So what's a, you know, a, a word that has eight letters would become quite a few more, um, about 30 or so separate features would be formed out of that. One of the features would be TION, and each feature would have a different value in the weight matrix. Out of curiosity, do you know how complete the engrams are? Like, do you know how well you could capture the meaning of, of language with engrams of specified n, let's say n equals four or n equals five? How much meaning would we lose if we restricted our, our language to only that? Well, we do actually know the answer to that. And the, and the way that we measure that is with the entropy of a language model. We train a language model to predict the next word, the next character. And what we want to do is measure the error that that model experiences on regular text, and we measure it in terms of its entropy. As the language model gets better, the entropy of the language model reduces. The best language models now, you know, we talked about a one-hot encoding, something else you might do, um, what we now use are called embeddings, where each, the, the one-hot is actually expanded so that each end character, end gram, or each character, or each word has a vector representation, which could be you know, 300 or 1,000 units long. And then those vector representations are processed in some way. Either they form a, you know, get fed into a neural network, mm. um, or they might be, uh, a recurrent neural network might be applied to them to capture some sense of sequence. 
uh, and so on and so on. So, the, the, but those are basically the techniques that we have for breaking down uh, into subwords. So, is English then fairly easy, and millennial English super easy, and literary German impossible? No, I think quite the opposite. Actually, literary German is going to be relatively easy because it, it'll be spelled well. <laughs> Where you really have trouble. Hmm. is with what, what's really hard to predict on is the kind of text that James was talking about because of this noise and the noise in text. It, it, imagine a chat log. What's the noise in a chat log? Somebody's forgetting vowels. Their the keyboard is sticky. They're cursing. The sentences don't have, you know, there's no subject. There's no object. There's no grammar in them. Right. So, so what you're saying is that what's important is not just the potential choice set or the size of the potential number of combinations of letters that can make sensible things, but rather how many of those choices are actually feasible. So you could have German words that are 20 characters long, but they'd be a lot easier to predict than words that are four letters long because actually knowing the first uh, the first three and then the first uh, characters six through nine or whatever is is fairly predictive of what the rest of the word is. Is that right? It's not so much the issue of the language as much as it is millennial text versus literary text. There are no engrams for emojis. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't have a uh, we don't have an emoji embedding. I, I think actually, I think somebody was working on an emoji neural network a while back, uh, but we don't generally uh, train for emojis in our models. Um, but this the, this problem of noise in language is a very hard problem. So I, I guess one of the big issues is that it's not labeled as well. I mean, or it's very extremely costly to label. It's extremely costly to label. And what we do for academic, for, for research, is that there are some sets that are out there that people have undertaken to, to label. There are large sets. In fact, there's a consortium, an NLP consortium, and they will sell you for $2,000. You can buy the, the, the standard data set. One of the things that Google has been doing, because they've been getting into this language model uh, stuff very heavily, they're probably the leaders right now, they have a project to create free large data sets that are tagged for things like grammar and so forth, grammar and co-reference and all that in multiple languages so that you can train multilingual models. Um, and they're working on that. It's an ongoing project. But ordinarily, the biggest source of noise that we have, at least in my work, is when things aren't labeled right because they're just labeled wrong because a person made an error. And that data, the, the level of error in the data can vary widely. We, I was working on a project where originally we couldn't get the recall to get above around 80%. We couldn't get F1 to get, uh, get above the, late, the high 70s. And what we found out was that the reason for that was that about 10% of the data was actually mislabeled. It seems like there are two kinds of errors that we're talking about. One, error, one type of error is an error in labeling when you're training set. A second type of error is an error in the text itself. Right. So like when millennials are typing on their phones, they'll often have typos and, and smudge things so that even if your training set was perfect and your labeling there was was just right, because you haven't seen all the possible permutations of errors, you might be misperceiving things. But I guess that mislabeling would be much more costly to your model. Uh, how do you how do you think about that? With mislabeled data, your model is going to be learning the wrong relationships, right. not just kind of understanding the predictive uncertainty, but actually discovering the wrong relationships structurally. It's absolutely what happens. I mean, in our mislabeling, um, we were looking at medical diagnostics for individuals. And the nature of the, the first mislabeling we found, the 10%, was that an individual might have multiple reports. And all of the reports were marked positive if the patient was positive for this illness. But 
they were labeled positive. But the truth was that somebody could go in and they have this illness, but their test on one day is negative and three days later it's positive. But all of those were labeled positive. And what was happening was that we were actually attempting to detect the latent variable of who was sick. Right. We weren't detecting what we were supposed to be detecting, which was actually what's in the reports. And what that did for us is the, the you know, we were trying to be clever doing that. And what it did was that we just weren't able to predict that very well. Mm. But surely being aware that there might be mislabeling could help you. Like, I'm trying to think through how what you're doing would compare to what a doctor seeing a patient would do. Right. So the the benefit of having a large data set and doing these sorts of training models is that you can have a sense of when there's likely to be an error in your prediction. Right. So if I'm a doctor and I'm seeing the same the same kind of error that you're talking about, I'm seeing a, a patient who's had three different tests and they've had different results in different times, but they're all reported as positive. I've I've got much less data to go on to know that there's probably something wrong given all of the other symptoms that I'm observing than you with your big data model, right? I've been thinking a lot about errors in labeling and noise in the last couple of weeks. And I actually really wanted to get James's take on this um, from a Bayesian perspective. So in this project, we go along and what we discover early on is that about 10% of the data is mislabeled. Okay. Sorry, so uh, before you go on, how did you find out? Were you told by the hospital or did you did your predict- predictions suggest to you that there was some some issue and you went digging around and you realized afterwards, based on seeing the output for your, from your model, that something must have been wrong and you then you figured out that it was mislabeled? We added somebody to the project who was very, very clever. And that person did this very, very clever thing of looking at what the model was, of taking what the model was mispredicting and looking at the actual data, what the report said. And those were the people that were mislabeled. That person realized that a large percentage of what the model was mispredicting, it was actually predicting correctly. Hmm. It was really mislabeled. So that's super cool, right? That's something that you can't do without uh, some sort of machine learning or, or statistical model. So we get to that point. And our first thing is we discover that these 10% are mislabeled and we deal with that problem. And we think we've got our accuracy, our recall up back into the 90s again, where it's supposed to be. And time goes on. And then we, people start to use the model and they see things that, that aren't quite what they expect. And we go back and we look at it and we diagnose what's going on. And we find out that there was a different kind of noise. The person who had given us this data had made a quite understandable mistake. They'd actually only given us about one third of the positive examples that they'd intended to. So of 270 types of illness that we predict, they had actually only given us trading samples for about 180. But they were trying to predict all of them. So we thought our recall was in the upper 90s. And then when we got this additional data set, our data doubled in the course of a week um, late in this project. And when we got this additional data, we realized that our recall before had actually been in the 40s. Wow. So we had problem one, which was that 10%. And then we have this thing. And so my question for you, James, as a Bayesian, now we have to measure the performance of the model and we have to report going forward what we think the actual performance of the model is and what degree of uncertainty there is about it. How do I do that? (laughs) The labels keep being wrong. The data may not be sufficient. The data turns out to be wrong in one way. And then we find one way and another way and another way. How do we know that we're done? Yeah, right. Model it all in the error term. (laughs) <laughs> no, we don't model it all in the error term. And, and so this is 
something that I've I've been learning the hard way over the last six months. Um, so before the presidential election last year, I I had a couple of blog posts. So one of them was up on Gilman's blog, and one of them was on my blog um, about uh, modeling um, a little bit like five thirty eight style models, uh, generating predictions of uh, who was ahead, or at least trying to measure this this latent um, latent preference across the electorate of, of whether they liked Clinton or or Trump better. And did you outperform them? Well, so I guess I had a tiny bit of overlap between Clinton and Trump. I had to assign zero zero possibility to a um, to a Trump presidency. But the, but the point was uh, where I got schooled was that I was treating the input data, which I was I was taking the polling firm aggregates, which you you can download from um, Real Clear Politics. I was I was scraping Real Clear Politics to get the data, and then using this data as a as quote unquote data input into my model and I was treating that not as the output of some model that has its own bias and its own errors and that sort of thing and consequently I was making some some really big mistakes uh, because I wasn't taking into account that uncertainty now so what a what a true Bayesian would do is unless the data is quote unquote true then you model it as being measured with error and I mean you don't need to be at a Bayesian to this, but this is a very generativist way of looking at the world. You, all of your observations come with some error, there, some measurement error, and you really need to build that into the model. Um, so where a lot of the polling firms went wrong, and this is kind of relates back to my work. Um, so for the listeners, uh, so Shosh and Amos are aware um, what I do for work. Um, so we predict uh, cash flows for um, debt portfolios in sub-Saharan Africa. So we securitize debt in sub-Saharan Africa and to do that, we need very good forecasts of how much a portfolio of consumer debt is going to repay um, over the, the coming period um, because we hold the other side of it and we want to have an understanding both of how much cash flows will come in and what the dispersion of those cash, cash flows are. Uh, so is it going to be, should we be very uncertain or should we be quite certain now, one of the big things in, in say, the, the credit card companies or the banks and that sort of thing um, in the States is they've got these huge, huge data sets of customers and it's very typical to build these uh, what we call scorecard models um, where you try to predict the outcome of a, of a loan um, maybe at two years. And uh, to do that, we'll use the information that's available at maybe 30 or 60 days into the loan. And we'll train some model um, to make this prediction. We'll throw some big machine learning model at, at it or build a scorecard or whatnot. Now, where this relates to the whole problem of having you know, errors is that those models will tend to um, generate predictions under the assumption that each observation, so each customer, is conditionally independent. Now, of course, that's a kind of crazy assumption when you're modeling debt. We all know from the 2008 crisis that when one person defaults, that's good information. There are other people likely to default as well. It's because portfolios get hit by, by these common shocks. And so what we found um, was that we really needed to uh, actually model the codependence of these models, uh, of, of these repayers, of these loans together. So this is... Sorry, Shosh, why are you taking photos of the... <laughs> that, 
for, for those of you who are listening at home or on the subway or wherever, so we're doing this over video chat. And one of the interesting things about doing this process is seeing a different view into Shoshana's life each week. <laughs> one of the things that we discovered last time is that on one side of Shoshana's bedroom is a gigantic whiteboard. That was in my living room for the record. <laughs> this is my bedroom. We're seeing this week. This sounds a drum kit. You told us, tried to convince us that it was your living room, but we don't believe you. <laughs> and now we're discovering that on the other side of Shoshana's living room or bedroom or whatever, there is a drum set. And Shoshana was just taking pictures of the screen, we think. I was. Well, I, I was very amused by our setup because while Jim was talking, Amos was playing around with the simulation that he had just shown us about exactly how how much better his predictions got with um with the improvements both in the 10 percent that was mislabeled and then the two-thirds of the data that were randomly added and just sort of scrolling the before and after and i was just you know that and the the sophisticated mic setup we've got like two com- i've got two computers simultaneously recording this and a glass of whiskey that I've gone through enough of to find this incredibly amusing. And I just thought I would take a snapshot. You've just discovered my attention deficit disorder, that I can't necessarily listen for an extended amount of time without fiddling (laughs) with my computer in some way, which is how I got into this career to begin with. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the sound. Mm -hmm. I was having so much fun with playing with Logic Pro, editing the last podcast, that I may actually be giving up this data science thing, because this audio engineer thing, stuff that's the next big thing <laughs> well you should come over to cambridge Amos, because i've got a whole music studio set up we could make a business of it two podcasts and you're already inviting me to your bedroom <laughs> can you say i move fast this is going much better than i planned <laughs> the moral of the story <laughs> is that is that sometimes you're trying to generate predictions where that where the outcomes are going to be correlated across units but not correlated be- based on the observables. These are going to be correlated on unobservables. And when that's the case, you really, really don't want to throw um, any kind of quote-unquote machine learning model at it. You might get great predictions in backtesting, but when true shocks come along and hit this portfolio, you get terrible predictions. So what you really need to do is think about the source of that correlation and model it explicitly. And unfortunately, that's not something that can be automated. This is difficult data science. This is difficult modeling. And the, the only profession that is not going to be automated away is going to be people in the business of automating other professions. <laughs> I hope so. You know, it's surprisingly hard to automate things. I found out uh, recently this week, in fact, that even automating charts isn't quite as easy as I thought it would be. I got a call from an old lawyer coworker of mine who's now the head of uh, the data science practice at his firm. And he was telling me that they've installed a new product from IBM to replace some of what the associates are doing. And, you know, the question, first question was, well, does it work? I guess the second question was, how could you tell? (laughs) The associates like it, they don't like it. I mean, what does an associate do anyway? (laughs) For those listening, uh, Amos was a corporate lawyer for a long time before making the jump over into NLP and machine learning. Props to you, Jim, for clearly being the man with a child in the room, in the sense that you're keeping us on track. Um, I thought what you were saying about modeling the correlated errors and or the, the specific errors across people very interesting. It reminded me of the kind of uh, error modeling that I do in my work. It's a bit different from the kinds of stuff that you guys are talking about. So when you guys talk about errors, you think about them mostly as measurement errors. 
right? There's errors in how things were labeled, but they're just sort of random on top of the data. There's actually the big error that I that, that was sort of was I was asking James about is what's the prior, what's the probability at any given moment? These modeling is a process. At, at any moment in the process, what's the probability that it's going to turn out that there's a giant bug in one of your inputs mm. that has caused you to have a data set that isn't what you think it is? And considering how often that happens in every project, mm. I mean, the prior at the start of a project is 100%. <laughs> so how, how do you know at what point that your project is done? No, so it's true. So it depends on where you think the error is coming from, right? You're still sort of thinking of errors as something that's coming on top of your data. There's just something wrong with your data that's not fitting your model. And and one another way to look at what you've just said is that when we do statistical modeling, we sort of assume to a large degree that our data is is following a story that fits. And and that story might be that, for example, the labels that we see are what we think those labels mean. If we see someone labeled the sick, then he's actually sick. A natural response to that is to say, well, there's some probability that when I when somebody's actually sick, I will see my data will say that he is not. Um, and and that ties into pretty closely and neatly actually into the kind of errors that I see in my work. I mean, I definitely deal with measurement error all the time. But in addition to that, I also see something that I call structural error. Um, I talked a little bit last time about structural models and, and the general idea of sort of saying there's a theoretical framework that informs how to map uh, some primitive framework to the kinds of outputs that I see in data. So, for example, there's uh, some logical map between people's preferences and the purchasing decisions that I get to observe, perhaps, in like a marketing data set. Um, and one of the assumptions that I have to make in order for that model to be complete is that essentially I'm seeing people making optimal choices, right? Like they cho they chose the particular type of toilet paper that, that, that I saw them buying because it was the, the type of toilet paper that optimized their quote unquote utility, gave them the best value for the money. When I go to the shops, I will normally buy the same thing, but I often change it up. How do you model that? I mean, so I'm the same, the product's the same, what's going on? Right. So you might be experimenting, which is something that in, in principle I could model explicitly and say um, part of your utility is just trying to see if there's, it's trying to discover your preferences. But another more generic way to say that uh, or, or to try to look at this is to say, I know that the optimization that I'm modeling is not quite right. Uh, maybe on generally I prefer uh, AngelSoft or Angel whatever that random paper is called. But uh, on Tuesday, I go into the store and I think, oh, Cottonelle just looks so much better. The wrapper just really strikes me on this particular day. It glistens in the sun and the way that the windows are poised. Um, and so on that on Tuesday, I, I decide to go with Cottonelle, even though gener generally I know that I prefer AngelSoft, right? So in my data, I don't really know what to make of that. <laughs> I feel like I know you so much better right now than I did yeah. even just a few minutes ago, Shoshana. What I was what I was trying to get at is is the idea that there's this sort of error in optimization that's in, going to be inevitable in it, in order for any model to fit. There's almost no case in which uh, a perfect model of optimal behavior is going to fit any data set in a in a reasonable way. Um, and I can use that to my advantage because in order for my models to really work, I need to observe a lot of people making decisions in similar settings. That's sort of the core of my identification strategy. 
So I see a lot of people who look very similar and, and seem to have similar preferences, making consistent decisions. Can we go back one second? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. You, you, said, you, you said this term, which is going to make sense to a third of our listeners, uh, identification strategy. What do you mean? Oh, come on, Jim. You know I could spend an entire podcast talking about what identification is. <laughs> well, maybe just like help people out. Yeah. So, so when I say identification, I, I generally just mean when we do statistical modeling, we have a sense of mapping parameters to outputs. That's, yeah. that's what statistics tries to do. It says there's some data generating function. You mean features to labels? Not, not quite. So these parameters will be like, Parameters inside someone's utility function or a firm's choice functions, that sort of thing. So, so features and latent variables. Well, in principle, it doesn't really matter. You can have identification in, in a general sense, right? Like the, the best way that I've had identification explained to me is that there's, there should be a mapping in your mind behind uh, bet- between a set of primitive parameters and a set of outputs. So let's say I have uh, two types of items. Uh, I have Ritz crackers and Cheez-Its. Um, and I want to see, uh, and, and I want to determine which types of people prefer Cheez-Its in most cases and which types of people prefer Ritz crackers, right? So in order for my model to be identified, I need to have a mapping between some parameter space. It could be a linear model that says my utility for, for Cheez-Its or my, the probability of my choosing Cheez-Its is logit of alpha times um, my age, right? That's a perfectly fine model, and it's not structural in in the sense that I usually talk about structural models. But the point is that I can then, if I if my model is that the probability of choosing Cheez-Its is logit, inverse logit of alpha times my age, then there's going to be a cutoff on alpha for which alpha below this cutoff uh, are people, people are going to choose Cheez-Its, and alpha above this cutoff, people are going to choose Ritz crackers, for example. Right. And if if I can show that there's going to be this cutoff, then my model is identified, because what, what it means is that if I observe a lot of people choosing Cheez-Its, I, infer, I can infer something direct about that alpha. And if I see a bunch of people um, buying Ritz crackers, then I can make it an inference about what their alpha is. One of the points here with identification is that you've got many, many models where you there are a, a large number of potential um, data generating processes that but many, many different stories that result in the same observed outcome. So we've got some observational equivalence between many, many different stories. And the whole process of, quote-unquote, identifying your model or your identification strategy is to work out which of those stories, which of those plausible explanations of data are wrong. So you're really reducing the space of, of ex- explanations. In a large sense, the point of identification is to say that there is a way in my data to reject some models. My um, any given framework is is identified if for if given an infinite data set, I could determine which model is correct precisely. Right. So how do you use this this notion of people making mistakes in their choice to identify identify your models? The third thing was that if I assumed my model had no error, if I assumed that everyone was perfectly optimizing, in the vast majority of cases, my model would just reject all theories because I'll just see people making things that seem unreasonable or illogical that just don't fit. Um, but what ha- what I can do, though, is I can say that p- I anticipate that people will make some mistakes. And if I observe enough of those mistakes, if I, re- if I believe that those mistakes are IID, they're, they're really random and not correlated with the kinds of features that I'm interested in predicting. 
So for example, the reason that I bought Cottonelle on Tuesday is really because of the sun and, and has nothing to do with the kind of consumer that I am, which is an assumption to be clear. But if I make that assumption, then I can leverage the fact that I observe a lot of these, a lot of observations that look quite similar, but have this IID error. Um, and then I can fit the distribution of the error with respect to the model residual, right? What did the what did the model predict that I should do on Tuesday? And what did the model predict that every person who looks like me should do on every day that I observe them? And I can and I take the difference between the prediction and what actually happened. Um, and by modeling that difference as an IID variable, let's say mean zero and normally distributed with some variance, I can sort of take apart or or separate out the uh, exogenous shocks that would otherwise invalidate my model and be able to to really hone in on the similarities between between the people that I observed to to actually uh, get a good estimation of the parameters of interest and make good predictions out of sample. And now our next segment is called Tools, Tools, Tools. This is our speed segment, so we're going to talk very, very quickly. Uh, Slidify, MNAF, we made all these interactive tools for R, and, you know, Slidify, R charts, HTML widgets, and I don't think he's updated anything in like three years. Really? What's going on with that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not a really big fan of using kind of cutting edge or pretty stuff. You're not a fan of using pretty stuff, Jim? You just, you gave me like an hour long schooling on how unpretty my charts were. Yeah, considering I've seen some of I see some of Jim's charts, I find it very difficult to believe that he doesn't pick data. So you know, pick models only for the sake of what charts are going to be pretty. <laughs> I like you making nice GG plot charts. I don't like interactive charts. I like I like a chart that you can read on the toilet <laughs> on on a piece of paper. <laughs> that should be your slogan, Jim. Charts you can read on the toilet. That'll be Jim's R package coming out next month. Our toilet charts. <laughs> we should call it GG Toilets. And now for a new segment, we're going to talk about data science in the news. And in particular, today we're going to talk about this New York Times article that came out on March 6th called Data Firm Says Secret Sauce Aided Trump. Many scoff. Immediately after the election, there was a there were a set of articles that said that Jared Kushner had hired this group, Cambridge Analytics. Oh my God, Cambridge Analytics. Yes, Cambridge Analytics, which could claim to be able to use psychometrics to predict based on people's Facebook profiles, um, whether they were intelligent people or dumb people and what their psychological makeup was and into 70 something different categories and to target special, moderately racist Facebook ads to prevent or cause, could either get those people to vote or prevent them from voting. Did either of you see that when it came out? I did, I read a couple of them. Yes, but also I've got a question. So my uh, so some of my family mem members who are not necessarily always politically correct uh, often tend to associate the word unintelligent or the notion of unintelligent with li with the other t uh, concept of liberalism, which is to say people who disagree with them and maybe giving away their uh, political preferences there uh, are unintelligent. Is that a, a dimension of bias that's... Uh, discussed in this article? Well, it's very interesting. This is not from this article, but there were some 
discussion about what Cambridge Analytics was doing, what they were actually trying to, to look at, what was in their psychological model. And it turns out that one of the things they were trying to measure is the degree to which somebody takes evidence and logic into account in forming their opinions. What they were in particular, apparently, attempting to do was to target pro-Trump ads to people whose decision-making preference is to have less information and less logic. Mm. That's fair. What's come out, though, now in this Times article is that Cambridge Analytics, which charges a very great deal of money to do all of this stuff, now it turns out maybe none of it even worked. They're saying that it wasn't any better predicting voting than traditional models. The stuff they did on Facebook may not have worked. And some of that fancy stuff that we heard after the election that they'd done, it turns out they may not even have done that stuff at all. It might just have been marketing. It also just reminds me of this uh, review article that I saw coming out in Economics Journal recently about uh, people's desire to avoid information. So there's this uh, very old idea that people try to avoid information that's negative, right? Like you get a, you take an exam that you don't think you did well on, you really hold off on picking up that exam as long as you can. Or, you know, you avoid tests for Alzheimer's or avoids or tests for HIV. And there are just dozens and dozens of examples of this. And it seems like this is something that happened during the election as well. And, and it's one of the reasons that academics give for fake news dominating or this sort of tribal news idea being so powerful. And it's this idea that people just sort of go towards the types of news and information that they already agree with, and they avoid at all costs getting anything that might contradict what they already believe. What do we think about this idea, though, that you can predict people's personality type, build a psychological profile from somebody's Facebook account, and use that to target political ads to influence their voting behavior? I receive emails from, I'm sure you guys do as well, but that company, Cora. And you know Quora, they send you emails. And my click-through rate on Quora emails is like 10 times whatever the, like whatever New York Times or, or Wall Street Journal click-through rate would be. So well, I also get like, you know, dozens of emails every day, like we all do from various subscriptions. And I, my click-through rate on Quora is insane. And I can only put that down to the fact that they must be, have a really good model of, of what I like. So I, don't, I think this is actually... Well, it could just be that you like the kinds of topics discussed on Quora more than the kinds of news headlines that come up on New York Times. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, is, a website for people, it is a website for people like me. The other thing is that, like, so I, I partly buy that um, Cambridge Analytica might have been able to build pretty good profiles for some people. Um, whether they can build better profile than other competing firms is not a question. But I think, like, there are people... Well, I, I share a lot of stuff on Facebook and I reckon you can get a very, very good sense of my personality by scrolling through the last, the last 20 posts that I've put up on Facebook. You can probably get an even better view of my personality from following me on Twitter. Well, you probably just think that you're a giant data nerd who doesn't think about anything else. I don't know how accurate that is, Jim. That, that's extremely accurate. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but there are people who volunteer a lot of information. But then I've got like all these childhood friends and they update their Facebook twice a year. And I just don't think that, that Cambridge Analytica is going to be able to... Yeah, but I think that's even beside the point, right? The reason that I really brought up this idea of information avoidance is that we're we're seeing now uh, a trend, right? Like during the election, we saw a lot of a discussion of fake news and how Trump supporters were seeing all this fake news and it was really affecting how they were how they were behaving. But now since the election, people have started talking about how 
liberals have started getting a, a lot of fake news. Because somebody realized that you could get people to click on a link as long as it says something bad about Donald Trump. And, and the thing is, you can't tell what's fake news and what's not because the real news about Donald Trump is so ridiculous and absurd. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that if somebody made it up a year ago, you'd think this is a joke, but it's not. It's true. <laughs> But maybe the broader point is that people just click on things that they like and don't click on things that they don't like. And the idea that a specific that the per, the kind of person who doesn't isn't interested in quote unquote logical reasoning is more likely to vote for Trump is possibly baseless because it seems like there are a whole lot of people who like uh, who like to avoid logical reasoning because all humans seem to like avoiding information that conflicts with their current beliefs. Well, what, what do we think, though, about this idea that you can use people's behavior? This seems to be very similar from one perspective to your work, Shoshana, in that what they're trying to do is, based on a limited number of observables, what people do on Facebook, to try and identify some kind of latent hidden variable about the person that the person may not even be aware of themselves, and then use that to either predict their behavior or predict how they'll, you know, what the best way is to influence their behavior towards one thing or another. Right. Well, the question is how good your model can be, right? I guess what I'm suggesting is that the model that the, the article suggested Cambridge Analytica was using is not very good because the idea of, of avoiding, the concept of avoiding information is, is quite broad. And I guess I'm arguing not particularly predictive of lean, of leaning towards someone like Donald Trump. It could easily explain leaning towards other candidates as well. And so I, I guess the, the broader point is that if you could have a very good predictive model, which is to say, if there were actually features that existed that could very easily predict something like po political behavior, then sure, we could certainly try to do that. But it seems like predicting voting beyond some very basic factors like, uh, does your district generally vote Republican? What kind of social pressure do you face? And what are the sort of core values in, in the area that you live? Beyond those kinds of things, it seems like political behavior is remarkably difficult to predict because the there's very little context consistency between things that we've observed, right? Like the polls that we see today are very, very different from the polls that we saw 10 years ago, which are even more different from polls 30 years before, because every election cycle and every news cycle, every political cycle, there are new challenges that come up and new, th new kinds of things that people are thinking about. And I'm not convinced that, the, that there's a very consistent model that's going to be predictive across the lines. This is absolutely fascinating because there was an article last week about the role of data science. The Democrats had, had gone and done some data science and uh, to figure out where, who was going to vote for them and who not. And basically the person who did that came back and said, we should just completely give up on classes of voters. And the, and the gist of the article was that that's totally wrong, that what politics is actually about is changing things. And those preferences right. aren't stable. And the whole business of politics, you, you, if you look right. at voter data right, right. at a moment in time, you're seeing the results of the political process at a moment in time. But the, the, but the process yeah. is about changing those things. That's, that's what politics is, is moving the people one way or another. Absolutely. And it reminds me of this podcast I was actually just listening to by Yasha Monk, who's this, uh, I think, lecturer or something like that at Harvard. Uh, he was talking about the dangers of relying on demographics. So one of the arguments or one of the criticisms made of the Democrats in this last election is that the Democrats were relying super hard on this idea that demographically they should be winning within the next decade or two, right? If you look at the dem demographic patterns in the U.S., the kinds of demographic groups that tend to vote Democrat, which is to say Latinos, young people, et cetera, non-white non, non -white males, 
uh, are are growing in population and growing population density and becoming uh, older and more eligible to vote or more likely to vote. So if the the idea was that if the that if the Democrats just hold through for the next few ele- election cycles, they'll be golden. But of course, this kind of reasoning seemed to really falter in 2016 because first of all, people who weren't necessarily excited about the Democrats coming up decided to rebel. But also, it, we what, one of the things we discovered was that the cur- the demographic blocks that the Democrats were relying on just weren't strong enough. They're not strong enough now, and they weren't even strong enough in perhaps in some of the places they were relying on, like. Uh, like parts of Florida, for example, that are heavily Hispanic. Um, and so w- one of the things that Yashamang says is that it's a danger to rely on these kinds of demographics or predictive models that say that th- that such and such voters are always going to vote for you because it makes you complacent. And what it does is it replaces your strategy from trying to make policies that are broadly representative and broadly popular to just playing to your bases in places that you already expect to do well in. All, all, I mean, also politics is an equilibrium game and this is the whole median photo principle that when you've got, you know, parties that are competing for votes, then they're going to compete for the median vote. Well, I don't know that we're seeing a lot of median voter competition at the moment, but yeah. Well, that's, that concept that's an equi- equilibrium game it seems to me to be a very important insight. This is a really, really fascinating uh, topic because one of the things, I guess, that Trump did and it's something that is pretty wild is to um, explore a part of the what you know, economists would call it a characteristic space that or preference space. People have these preferences over various things. Right. And one of the things, I mean, imagine if you're a, a goods manager, like a product product manager, and there's a whole bunch of competitors and they're all selling a fairly similar product, but there are, there's this latent demand for a product that's actually quite dissimilar and you go and, and, you go and sell that product. Now, that's essentially what, what Trump did. You, are we going to run BLP on on voting preferences, Jim? I reckon we should. So, what's a BLP? We'll talk about that next week. Next time. Uh, Topic for next week will be <laughs> BLP and other acronyms that Amos doesn't know. <laughs> so, one of the things that Trump did was he he really sold a good where there were no competitors, and yet there was still quite a bit of latent demand, um, and that was how he won the primaries, and that's how he ended up. So, so he, he wasn't actually targeting the median vote; he was targeting this this vote that hadn't really that had been untapped which was yeah. i guess with I, i'm not going to call it genius because i think like he lost the the popular vote by three million people well i'd also just generally suggest avoiding putting words genius and trump in the same sentence if, if at all possible <laughs> <laughs> we're getting off topic thank you for listening to the error term we will be back in a random number of days drawn from an unknown distribution <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.